Hello everyone. Hope you're all having a great day so far. So, some very, very good news to start off the month of March. As of the recording of this episode, our third vaccine for COVID-19 has been approved from the FDA, and it's from Janssen. Remember, it's the only one so far approved in the U.S. that's a single dose administration. Hopefully that gets more folks excited and likely to get vaccinated. I know I can't wait to get whatever comes my way, likely when I'm called up in May or June, or June or July, whenever. So please continue masking up, washing up, and staying physically distant in the meantime. I know we'll all get our chance to get vaccinated. So, welcome to my ninth episode of Season 2. Today is Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. My name is Sanal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Now, are you curious for how to compliantly bill Medicare when it's a secondary insurance? Well, look no more. I get into it in this episode. And I introduce a very special guest on this episode, Nexon Pruitt Associate, Shannon Lippum. And I also share some inspirational words from Sir Edmund Hillary. If you've checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss an episode. Please write in a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. Now, a quick disclaimer. Before I get started on the episode, this podcast episode and Nexon Pruitt podcast series do not constitute legal advice, but I am fortunate to work with sound healthcare attorneys at Nexon Pruitt. And as their consultant, I have over 10 years of experience in front office, back end, coding, and billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. Again, the opinions and insights throughout are mine alone, and they in no means constitute legal advice. So, let's get into a very special newsworthy that features my guest today, Nexon Pruitt Associate, Shannon Lippum. I'm so excited to introduce her to all of you. Shannon works in the firm's healthcare practice group, where she helps to support a range of practitioners and practice groups, hospitals and laboratories, and other entities as they navigate the increasingly complex field of healthcare. Shannon has experience assisting in certificate of need and related regulatory litigation, representation of hospitals and physician patient and payer disputes, federal regulatory healthcare compliance, and advice related to healthcare transactions and affiliation structures, as well as a wide range of other healthcare matters. Now, during law school, Shannon worked as a summer associate in the Columbia office for multiple years. Shannon earned her law degree from the University of South Carolina School of Law 
and her undergraduate degree is from the University of South Carolina Honors College. During law school, Shannon was an articles editor for the South Carolina Law Review and was elected chair of the Honor Council. She was also a member of the John Belton O'Neill Inn of Court. Shannon is also invested in giving back to her community and devotes her time to a number of causes and pro bono matters, including by serving as a member of the United Way of the Midlands Education Council, and she also volunteers with Nexon Pruitt's Women's Leadership Initiative's Next Steps program, where she speaks to middle schoolers in the Midlands about professionalism, education, and safety. Shannon is simply great to work with, and I'm so happy to have assisted her on several of her research projects over the years. Thank you so much for joining me here today, Shannon. Thank you, Sunal, for the warm introduction and for having me here today. Excellent, excellent, thank you. Now, it's been an enormous year of challenges, particularly in this space of healthcare and the coronavirus pandemic. It's the COVID-19 pandemic that I think has really pushed and allowed change to happen at a much, much faster pace than we've really ever seen. CMS has worked swiftly over a year ago when the virus first hit our shores and continues to work feverishly to update us all, even during the transition to our 46th president, vaccines that are rolling out, the works. So I thought you could provide my listeners today with your takeaways and brilliant insights based on your legal knowledge and experience in regards to HIPAA both before, during, and after this pandemic is over. So can you probably tell us a little bit about what's been going on with HIPAA regulations during this COVID-19 pandemic? Where do the relaxations lie and where are they still enforced in full? Absolutely, so HIPAA is one of the very interesting and it seems rare spaces in healthcare where it really hasn't changed dramatically as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Whereas, you know, everything in the world seems to be changing, HIPAA enforcement especially is still going very strong. As you know, OCR within the Department of Health and Human Services is responsible for enforcing HIPAA regulations. And they had a very active 2020 year in terms of settlements of potential violations. In fact, there were a record 19 HIPAA resolution agreements announced in 2020, which is wow. the most ever announced in one year. Wow. But, um, you know, of course, COVID-19 has changed the HIPAA arena, and they um, it's done this through various notifications of enforcement discretion handed down by HHS, which basically is a notification that the law isn't changing, but until HHS, HHS says otherwise, there won't be any enforcement for certain failures to comply. Um, the biggest notification arguably was based on OCR's recognition of the increased importance of telehealth um, during the pandemic because providers needed to respond so quickly to the pandemic. Some of the technologies and the manner in which they're used don't fully comply with HIPAA requirements, specifically the privacy and security rules. So for example, 
using Facebook Messenger video chat to communicate with patients. That's not set up to be HIPAA privacy and security compliant, but some of these mediums have become necessary when providers are speaking and seeing patients so much more frequently through telehealth. So OCR issued a notification of enforcement discretion early in 2020 that they won't impose penalties against covered healthcare providers for non-compliance with HIPAA in connection with the good faith provision of telehealth during the COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency. And they did add that term good faith provision in there. Um, so what this really means is providers using video communication to provide telehealth can essentially use any non-public facing remote communication product that's available without spending the additional time and burden of figuring out whether it's HIPAA compliant for, you know, like encryption and business associate agreements. Um, and this applies to all telehealth communications, not just communications related to diagnosis and treatment of COVID-19. So some of the popular applications that providers can use and have been using under this notice are FaceTime, Facebook Messenger video chat, Google Hangouts video, Zoom, and Skype. It, um, but clearly, they've clearly noted that public-facing communications like Facebook Live and TikTok can't be used for, uh, under the notification. The most popular HIPAA-compliant HIPAA video communication products before the, the uh, notification are Skype for Business, Microsoft Teams, Zoom for Healthcare, Cisco WebEx Meetings, and GoToMeeting, among many, many others. They're all made to be HIPAA-compliant. Um, but as for this discretion continuing into the future, we really don't know how long it will last. Uh, people believe that OCR is not likely to discontinue this enforcement discretion anytime soon, and it's going to last at least as long as the public health emergency. Uh, it's really a signal that telehealth is more and more important in these times, but it's always still important for covered entities and their business associates to use their best efforts to comply with HIPAA, if for no other reason, because patients receiving care through telehealth still expect their providers to safeguard the privacy and security of their health information. Um, there have been a couple other notifications of enforcement discretion that are outside of the telehealth space. Um, for example, OCR is not imposing penalties against providers or their business associates for good faith uses and disclosures of protected health information by specifically business associates for public health and health oversight activities during the public health emergency. Um, HIPAA already permits covered entities to use and disclose protected health information for certain public health and health oversight purposes, but currently business associates can only use or disclose PHI for those purposes if it does so under a business associate agreement, which often prohibits these kinds of disclosures. So the idea is for business associates um, to be able to timely participate in efforts to help combat COVID-19 when often a business associate agreement doesn't expressly permit them to use, to make these uses and disclosures. Um, and again, this has to be in good faith and the business associate has to inform the covered entity of the disclosure within 10 days. But outside of this enforcement discretion that, that wouldn't be allowed. So that's an interesting one. And then 
there's OCR also isn't imposing sanctions and penalties against covered hospitals that don't comply with certain provisions of the privacy rule. And there's a laundry list. Um, nothing is totally game changing, but for example, the requirement to obtain a patient's agreement to speak with family member or friends involved in the patient's care. Uh, normally you need the patient's consent, but that's being not being enforced during the public health emergency. And same for the requirement to honor a patient's request to opt out of a family directory or the requirement to distribute notice of privacy practices. So those are all kind of all, the enforcement of all those things is kind of halted during the pandemic. I mean, wow, that's an incredible amount of information. All of the ins and outs from before COVID, during COVID, and even your thoughts of what's going to happen after COVID. So I appreciate those expanded details. Um, I know it's going to help my listeners wrap their heads around what they should still be doing to maintain HIPAA standards, how they should be doing things right. So are you seeing compliance issues with HIPAA currently during the pandemic? Do you have any recommendations you can make here to help button up compliance? Yes. So by far the biggest area of HIPAA compliance in the past year or so, ironically unrelated in any way to COVID-19, has been right of access breaches. Our team has been receiving lots of questions from clients regarding the requirement to provide certain individuals with access to their protected health information or PHI and you know the details and rules surrounding that access. Um, OCR launched in September 2019 the HIPAA right of access initiative and they have just forged ahead with enforcing it. Uh, since we noted earlier 2020 was a record year for HIPAA enforcement roughly two-thirds of the enforcement actions last year were dealing with right of access. Uh, the initiative is meant to vigorously enforce the HIPAA regulations that are in place that provide patients the right, of, the right to access and obtain copies of their PHI promptly and subject to certain fee limits. As of mid last month, there have been 14 total right of access settlements since it was launched in September 2019. They are relatively small when it comes to HIPAA settlements, but they've reached up to $200,000 and they've extended these, uh, they've enforced against entities of all sizes from solo practitioners uh, to very large health systems. And these compliance issues are, for example, the failure to provide timely timely access to protected health information and a lot of unreasonable barriers to access. Like for example, having individuals having to verify their identity in person, even when they live across the country or they're gonna be emailed their health information. So both of those things have seen a lot of enforcement in the past year. Um, and there are of course other enforcement issues, the remaining compliance issues continue to deal with the familiar HIPAA violations like breaches of protected health, <laughs> breaches of protected health information and uh, failure to comply with the security rule compliance, all outside of the notice notifications of enforcement discretion that we talked about earlier. I mean, wow, you are just full of incredible information. I mean, there are so many 
so many strange things that go on in the world of HIPAA, right? I mean, that's in my opinion, just a lot of strange things. Um, oh, yeah. Like, for example, I can speak from experience. I know when I used to be employed with MD Anderson years ago, I remember specifically working and overhearing that there were staff and personnel at the neighboring hospitals um, who quickly got fired, who had to pack their little boxes and leave um, because they were invading patient records. Patients who were at their hospitals, they were snooping around at their PHI because of what was going on in their healthcare because they were some famous star or athlete or personality you know, that happened to arrive in downtown Houston and had to get care at one of the big hospitals. Um, you know, and even as you and I are having this conversation today, there was some pretty big, in my mind, breaking news um, about this gentleman who claims to be a whistleblower, you know, but in fact, he ends up being fined um, and jailed for a little bit of time for falsely claiming a nurse had violated HIPAA, when in fact it was he him, him, himself who had ended up creating these false and fictitious email accounts for these pretend patients who were complaining about this so-called nurse. Um, it was a big soap opera story that ended up being just the two of them were actually former acquaintances, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just a personal situation that escalated into this event that became breaking news in the HIPAA world. So anyway, I digress on a that side will be note, interesting but to watch. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, right? Oh, a yeah. lot going on. Um, but obviously, you know, based on all of your prior insights, I think I'm hearing that legal teams are a must. Legal teams are a must. But where specifically do you see a need for legal to be involved in this space of HIPAA as we all move forward in 2021? Obviously, I think right of access is gonna be one of those biggest areas. This initiative is not going anywhere. And it seems like enforcement of right of access rules is going to stay the same or increase. Um, so it's, it'll be really important for healthcare lawyers to keep up with the right of access requirements as they relate to covered entities and business associates. Um, and another area, you know, cybersecurity continues to change and evolve every day, but that's something that is directly related to HIPAA. So um, that's gonna be important to keep up with as it relates to changes to the HIPAA rules and regulations or changes to the way that covered entities comply. Um, and relatedly, I think it will be important to pay attention to the rules surrounding telehealth when it comes to HIPAA. Um, and interestingly, a thing to watch in 2021 are is that the new HIPAA proposed regulations came out last month. And these are just proposed, but um, some changes are gonna be, if, if passed, helpful to providers on a day-to-day -day basis. So for example, the proposal removes the requirement that a covered entity obtains an individual signature or acknowledgement of receipt of a notice of privacy practices, which currently is in place that patients have to sign that they've received this notice of privacy practices. But instead, um, individuals are going to have the right to discuss the notice of privacy practices with a person designated at the covered entity. 
um, but they won't need to obtain any kind of a signature from the patients. Uh, the proposal also removes the minimum necessary requirement when health plans or providers make disclosures for care coordination and case management at the individual level. So for example, when an insurer requests that a provider disclose an individual's PHI for care coordination, for, you know, to, to facilitate the individual's participation in a wellness program, for example, the provider could, if passed, disclose their, the individual's PHI without wow. analyzing whether the disclosure meets the minimum necessary standard, which is a big standard to, yeah, which is, is a big analysis to undertake. Mm -hmm. um, so that would speed things along from a provider perspective. Um, it also will broaden the allowable disclosures for health emergencies. And by that, it's not talking about necessarily COVID-19, but the, the proposal would allow greater disclosure for the care and treatment of individuals experiencing things like substance abuse disorders, serious mental health issues, and other individual health emergencies. Covered entities would be permitted to disclose PHI if there is a serious and reasonably foreseeable threat. Currently, there has to be a serious and imminent threat. So that lowers the bar of when it can be disclosed without patient consent. And it also replaces exercise of professional judgment with good faith belief as the standard for when covered entities need to disclose PHI in the best interest of individuals. So all overall lowers the bar there. Some changes are also aligned, of course, with the right of access initiative. Um, it's looking at decreasing the time allotted to respond to individuals' requests for access to their PHI. Currently it's 30 days. It's gonna change, it would, if passed, it will change that timeline for providers or all covered entities to 15 days with potentially one 15 day extension. Um, and it would allow individuals to take notes or photos to capture their PHI as a result of their right to inspect it in person. Um, right now, covered entities can turn you away for trying to take a photo, even though you do have that right to inspect in person. So I would say the bottom line here is that HIPAA is not going anywhere and the same types of questions and review that have always been conducted should continue during and after the um, pandemic. And I mean, mainly because enforcement settlements and penalties can be devastating. The largest in 2020 was for $39.5 million against a large health insurer based in Indiana for the largest data breach in history, but a $39.5 million huge. enforcement settlement. That's huge. Yeah, we have to maintain HIPAA standards. I agree, it's not going anywhere. Um, yeah, pandemic or no pandemic, we should be doing things right. Completely exactly. agree. Wow, that's a whopping number. That's a huge fine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, Shannon, I'm really leaning in here. Is there any way to fight a HIPAA enforcement? Um, has any covered entity or business associate ever actually been successful? in this type of thing? You don't hear about this much, but actually very recently, um, a covered entity has successfully fought a penalty that was imposed against them by HHS. 
Wow. So the Fifth Circuit last month vacated penalties of over $4.3 million against MD Anderson, which you just mentioned earlier. Oh, wow. Uh, for alleged HIPAA violations. The violations stemmed from three incidents that occurred between 2012 and 2013. So we're looking way back here. Mm-hmm. In, um, in two of them, MD Anderson workforce members allegedly lost encrypted protected health information. And in one, uh, there was a theft of a faculty member's laptop that allegedly contained unencrypted protected health information. And MD Anderson did exactly what you can do to appeal these things. They went through the agency's administrative review process, and both the administrative law judge and the departmental appeals board upheld the penalties of, again, $4.3 million dollars. Uh, But then they took it to the Fifth Circuit and they concluded the penalties were arbitrary, capricious, and contrary to law and totally vacated them. Uh, There were a few big things the court focused on, but one of them is HIPAA only requires covered entities to have in place a mechanism for encrypting and decrypting electronic protected health information. MD Anderson definitely had in place such a mechanism, many actually. Yes. And the court said the failure of three employees to encrypt didn't equate to not being compliant with this HIPAA requirement. Um, And the court also looked at the failure to treat comparable cases alike. Mm -hmm. Uh, They referenced similar actions like stolen, unencrypted laptops where there were no penalties assessed against the entity. And they also said the penalty was too high Um, HHS had, according to the court, misconstrued and miscalculated its regulations with regard to the penalties and caps. So the case calls into question some of the longstanding enforcement practices, and it's always worth trying to either settle or, you know, fight the HIPAA penalties. It's always worth trying to fight, and this is a great example that attorneys should look at, right, and use as they move forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Awesome to hear. Some good news, right? So excellent. Right. Excellent. I'm glad I asked that question. I had no idea. <laughs> Just listening to you. That's wonderful. Wonderful, Shannon. So do you have anything else you might want to add that we perhaps didn't get to in our conversation today? Anything you'd like to leave my listeners with about HIPAA and Let's keep being strong and make efforts towards maintaining compliance here, right? Yeah, just to to finish up, get familiar with the HIPAA right of access and what is required of covered entities uh, when individuals request access because um, it's fairly new, but becoming more and more important each year. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for putting that message out for all of my listeners. Now we all know. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Shannon. I know my listeners are going to appreciate all of your insights on HIPAA compliance and integrity today, tomorrow, well into the future of landscape in American healthcare. So thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. Now, there's always a lot of confusion that surrounds us when Medicare is considered the secondary payer. What do you do? What should you do? What can you do compliantly? Remember, Medicare says, don't deny treatment or entry to a SNF or hospital or deny services based on an open or closed liability case 
a no-fault case or a workers' compensation case when there's a Medicare secondary payer and MSP record in the beneficiary's Medicare file, or if a claim was inappropriately denied. You must continue to see or provide services to that patient. If services relate to an open MSP accident or injury incident, you must first bill the other insurer as primary. Now, there are situations where claim services aren't related to the open accident or injury record for the beneficiary's MSP or their liability case or their no-fault case or their workers' compensation case record. For example, the diagnosis on the current claim are the same or within the same family of codes as the diagnosis codes on the accident or injury record, but the services are not related. So then Medicare may inappropriately deny your claim because the diagnosis codes on the claim and the MSP record are the same or within the same family. So remember, you should be appealing the inappropriately denied claims with your MAC. You must provide an explanation or a reason code to justify the services aren't related to the accident or injury on record. Here are some other key tips you should keep in mind. So check your claim and make sure that you submitted a correctly completed claim to the proper payers. You should be contacting your MAC and then file an appeal if it's necessary. An appeal and a phone call to the MAC is the most efficient way for resolving an inappropriately denied claim. Give all the information you can to your MAC that shows this is an inappropriate denial. Tell your MAC that the services performed aren't related to the accident or the injury on record, the reason why it's unrelated to the accident or injury on record, and request that Medicare adjust and pay the claim if it's a Medicare covered and payable service. Make sure you don't instruct the Medicare patients to contact their Benefits Coordination and Recovery Center, the BCRC, to delete the open MSP record. Because in so many situations, the open record may in fact be an active record that should not be deleted. Also, don't bill the Medicare patient for the inappropriately denied claims or refer the claims to a collection agency. Resolve the claims issue with your MAC. I think the most important thing to keep in mind here is if you give treatment to a beneficiary for accident-related services and non-accident-related services, don't submit both sets of services on the same claim to Medicare send separate claims to Medicare. One claim for the services related to the accident and another claim for the services not related to the accident on the same date of service. And you should always use specific diagnosis codes related to the accident or injury. So by painting all these fine details into the medical picture, a provider's documentation will support the code selection and claim details for a certified medical coder to then abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, in this week's inspiring quote in Spark, 
is from the late Kiwi, Sir Edmund Hillary. People do not decide to become extraordinary. They decide to accomplish extraordinary things. Absolutely, right? Now, I always believe we all can work hard towards achieving the amazing. It takes dedication and commitment to aim for something as extraordinary as climbing to the top of Mount Everest. But we all have the capacity to believe completely in ourselves, to really know that we can do great things. We must believe in ourselves because, as I love to say, no one else can do that for us. I'm so happy Edmund Hillary's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So, that wraps up today's episode. I can't wait to see what next week brings us. Go out and do great things this week. Aim a little higher. Do a little more. and Give back in any way you can in 2021. There's so much each one of us can do. Remember to keep masking up, washing up, and staying physically distant. So, as always, I appreciate you diving into today with me. And if you would like to inquire about my consultant services, you can always reach me through my email address at nexonpruitt.com. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all during our collective life in the time of coronavirus. Thank you for listening in on today's very special episode, and I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday.